until finally they discovered they had built up a wonderful business for the manufacturers of oil-burning outfits and the procurers of crude oil. The wages of sin is death. Many have read this in the Bible, but few have discovered its meaning. Now, and for several years, the entire world has been listening by force to a sermon which might well be called, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Nothing as widespread and effective as the Depression could possibly be just a coincidence. Behind the Depression was a cause. Nothing ever happens without a cause. In the main, the cause of the Depression is traceable directly to the worldwide habit of trying to reap without sowing. This should not be mistaken to mean that the Depression represents a crop which the world is being forced to reap without having sown. The trouble is that the world sowed the wrong sort of seed. Any farmer knows he cannot sow the seed of thistles and reap a harvest of grain. Beginning at the outbreak of the World War, the people of the world began to sow the seed of service inadequate in both quality and quantity. Nearly everyone was engaging in the pastime of trying to get without giving. These illustrations are brought to the attention of those who have personal services to market to show that we are where we are and what we are because of our own conduct. If there is a principle of cause and effect which controls business, finance, and transportation, this same principle controls individuals and determines their economic status. What is your QQS rating? The causes of success in marketing services effectively and permanently have been clearly described. Unless those causes are studied, analyzed, understood, and applied, no man can market his services effectively and permanently. Every person must be his own salesman of personal services. The quality and the quantity of service rendered and the spirit in which it is rendered determine to a large extent the price and the duration of employment. To market personal services effectively, which means a permanent market at a satisfactory price under pleasant conditions, one must adopt and follow the QQS formula, which means quality plus quantity plus the proper spirit of cooperation equals perfect salesmanship of service. Remember the QQS formula, but do more. Apply it as a habit. Let us analyze the formula to make sure we understand exactly what it means. 1. Quality of service shall be construed to mean the performance of every detail in connection with your position in the most efficient manner possible, with the object of greater efficiency always in mind. 2. Quantity of service shall be understood to mean the habit of rendering all the service of which you are capable at all times, with the purpose of increasing the amount of service rendered as greater skill is developed through practice and experience. Emphasis is again placed on the word habit. 3. Spirit of service shall be construed to mean the habit of agreeable, harmonious conduct which will induce cooperation from associates and fellow employees. Adequacy of quality and quantity of service is not sufficient to maintain a permanent market for your services. The conduct or the spirit in which you deliver service is a strong determining factor in connection with both the price you receive and the duration of employment. Andrew Carnegie stressed this point more than others in connection with his description of the factors which lead to success in the marketing of personal services. He emphasized again and again the necessity for harmonious conduct. He stressed the fact that he would not retain any man, no matter how great a quantity or how efficient the quality of his work, unless he worked in a spirit of harmony. Mr. Carnegie insisted upon men being agreeable. To prove that he placed a high value upon this quality, he permitted many men who conformed to his standards to become very wealthy. Those who did not conform had to make room for others. The importance of a pleasing personality has been stressed because it is a factor which enables one to render service in the proper spirit. If one has a personality which pleases and renders service in a spirit of harmony, these assets often make up for deficiencies in both the quality and the quantity of service one renders. Nothing, however, can be successfully substituted for pleasing conduct. The Capital Value of Your Services the person whose income is derived entirely from the sale of personal services is no less a merchant than the man who sells commodities, and it might well be added such a person is subject to exactly the same rules of conduct as the merchant who sells merchandise. 
This has been emphasized because the majority of people who live by the sale of personal services make the mistake of considering themselves free from the rules of conduct and the responsibilities attached to those who are engaged in marketing commodities. The new way of marketing services has practically forced both employer and employee into partnership alliances through which both take into consideration the rights of the third party, the public they serve. The day of the go-getter has passed. He has been supplanted by the go-giver. High-pressure methods in business finally blew the lid off. There will never be the need to put the lid back on because in the future business will be conducted by methods that will require no pressure. The actual capital value of your brains may be determined by the amount of income you can produce by marketing your services. A fair estimate of the capital value of your services may be made by multiplying your annual income by 16 and two-thirds, as it is reasonable to estimate that your annual income represents 6% of your capital value. Money rents for 6% per annum. Money is worth no more than brains. It is often worth much less. Competent brains, if effectively marketed, represent a much more desirable form of capital than that which is required to conduct a business dealing commodities, because brains are a form of capital which cannot be permanently depreciated through depressions, nor can this form of capital be stolen or spent. Moreover, the money which is essential for the conduct of business is as worthless as a sand dune until it has been mixed with efficient brains. The 30 Major Causes of Failure how many of these are holding you back? Life's greatest tragedy consists of men and women who earnestly try and fail. The tragedy lies in the overwhelmingly large majority of people who fail as compared to the few who succeed. I have had the privilege of analyzing several thousand men and women, 98% of whom were classed as failures. There is something radically wrong with a civilization and a system of education which permits 98% of the people to go through life as failures. But he did not write this book for the purpose of moralizing on the rights and wrongs of the world. That would require a book a hundred times the size of this one. My analysis work proved that there are 30 major reasons for failure and 13 major principles through which people accumulate fortunes. In this chapter, a description of the 30 major causes of failure will be given. As you go over the list, check yourself by it, point by point, for the purpose of discovering how many of these causes of failure stand between you and success. 1. Unfavorable hereditary background. There is but little, if anything, which can be done for people who are born with a deficiency in brain power. This philosophy offers but one method of bridging this weakness, through the aid of the mastermind. Observe with profit, however, that this is the only one of the thirty causes of failure which may not be easily corrected by any individual. 2. Lack of a well-defined purpose in life. There is no hope of success for the person who does not have a central purpose or definite goal at which to aim. Ninety-eight out of every hundred of those whom I have analyzed had no such aim. Perhaps this was the three, lack of ambition to aim above mediocrity. We offer no hope for the person who is so indifferent as not to want to get ahead in life and who is not willing to pay the price. Four, insufficient education. This is a handicap which may be overcome with comparative ease. Experience has proven that the best educated people are often those who are known as self-made or self-educated. It takes more than a college degree to make one a person of education. Any person who is educated is one who has learned to get whatever he wants in life without violating the rights of others. Education consists not so much of knowledge, but of knowledge effectively and persistently applied. Men are paid not merely for what they know, but more particularly for what they do with that which they know. 5. Lack of self-discipline. Discipline comes through self-control. This means that one must control all negative qualities. Before you control conditions, you must first control yourself. Self-mastery is the hardest job you will ever tackle. If you do not conquer self, you will be conquered by self. 
You may see at one and the same time both your best friend and your greatest enemy by stepping in front of a mirror. 6. Ill health. No person may enjoy outstanding success without good health. Many of the causes of ill health are subject to mastery and control. These, in the main, are a. Overeating of foods not conducive to health. b. Wrong habits of thought, giving expression to negatives. c. Wrong use of and overindulgence in sex. d. Lack of proper physical exercise. e. An inadequate supply of fresh air due to improper breathing. 7. Unfavorable environmental influences during childhood. As the twig is bent, so shall the tree grow. Most people who have criminal tendencies acquire them as the result of bad environment and improper associates during childhood. 8. Procrastination. This is one of the most common causes of failure. Old man procrastination stands within the shadow of every human being, waiting his opportunity to spoil one's chances of success. Most of us go through life as failures because we are waiting for the time to be right to start doing something worthwhile. Do not wait. The time will never be just right. Start where you stand and work with whatever tools you may have at your command, and better tools will be found as you go along. 9. Lack of Persistence most of us are good starters but poor finishers of everything we begin. Moreover, people are prone to give up at the first signs of defeat. There is no substitute for persistence. The person who makes persistence his watchword discovers that old man failure finally becomes tired and makes his departure. Failure cannot cope with persistence. 10. Negative Personality there is no hope of success for the person who repels people through negative personality. Success comes through the application of power, and power is attained through the cooperative efforts of other people. A negative personality will not induce cooperation. 11. Lack of controlled sexual urge. Sex energy is the most powerful of all the stimuli which move people into action. Because it is the most powerful of the emotions, it must be controlled through transmutation and converted into other channels. 12. Uncontrolled desire for something for nothing. The gambling instinct drives millions of people to failure. Evidence of this may be found in a study of the Wall Street crash of 29, during which millions of people tried to make money by gambling on stock margins. 13. Lack of a well-defined power of decision. Men who succeed reach decisions promptly and change them, if at all, very slowly. Men who fail reach decisions, if at all, very slowly and change them frequently and quickly. Indecision and procrastination are twin brothers. Where one is found, the other may usually be found also. Kill off this pair before they completely hogtie you to the treadmill of failure. 14. One or more of the six basic fears. These fears have been analyzed for you in a later chapter. They must be mastered before you can market your services effectively. 15. Wrong selection of a mate in marriage. This is a most common cause of failure. The relationship of marriage brings people intimately into contact. Unless this relationship is harmonious, failure is likely to follow. Moreover, it will be a form of failure that is marked by misery and unhappiness, destroying all signs of ambition. 16. Overcaution. The person who takes no chances generally has to take whatever is left when others are through choosing. Overcaution is as bad as undercaution. Both are extremes to be guarded against. Life itself is filled with the element of chance. 17. Wrong selection of associates in business. This is one of the most common causes of failure in business. In marketing personal services, one should use great care to select an employer who will be an inspiration and who is himself intelligent and successful. We emulate those with whom we associate most closely. Pick an employer who is worth emulating. 18. Superstition and prejudice. Superstition is a form of fear. It is also a sign of ignorance. Men who succeed keep open minds and are afraid of nothing. 19. Wrong selection of a vocation. No man can succeed in a line of endeavor which he does not like. 
the most essential step in the marketing of personal services is that of selecting an occupation into which you can throw yourself wholeheartedly. 20. Lack of concentration of effort. The jack-of-all-trades seldom is good at any. Concentrate all your efforts on one definite chief aim. 21. The habit of indiscriminate spending. The spendthrift cannot succeed mainly because he stands eternally in fear of poverty. Form the habit of systematic saving by putting aside a definite percentage of your income. Money in the bank gives one a very safe foundation of courage when bargaining for the sale of personal services. Without money, one must take what one is offered and be glad to get it. 22. Lack of enthusiasm. Without enthusiasm, one cannot be convincing. Moreover, enthusiasm is contagious, and the person who has it under control is generally welcome in any group of people. 23. Intolerance. The person with a closed mind on any subject seldom gets ahead. Intolerance means that one has stopped acquiring knowledge. The most damaging forms of intolerance are those connected with religion, racial, and political differences of opinion. 24. Intemperance. The most damaging forms of intemperance are connected with eating, strong drink, and sexual activities. Overindulgence in any of these is fatal to success. 25. Inability to cooperate with others. More people lose their positions and their big opportunities in life because of this fault than for all other reasons combined. It is a fault which no well-informed businessman or leader will tolerate. 26. Possession of power that was not acquired through self-effort. Sons and daughters of wealthy men and others who inherit money which they did not earn. Power in the hands of one who did not acquire it gradually is often fatal to success. Quick riches are more dangerous than poverty. 27. Intentional dishonesty. There is no substitute for honesty. One may be temporarily dishonest by force of circumstances over which one has no control without permanent damage. But there is no hope for the person who is dishonest by choice. Sooner or later his deeds will catch up with him, and he will pay by loss of reputation and perhaps even loss of liberty. 28. Egotism and Vanity These qualities serve as red lights which warn others to keep away. They are fatal to success. 29. Guessing instead of thinking. Most people are too indifferent or lazy to acquire facts with which to think accurately. They prefer to act on opinions created by guesswork or snap judgments. 30. Lack of capital. This is a common cause of failure among those who start out in business for the first time without sufficient reserve of capital to absorb the shock of their mistakes and to carry them over until they have established a reputation. 31. Under this name, any particular cause of failure from which you have suffered has not been included in the foregoing list. In these thirty major causes of failure is found a description of the tragedy of life which obtains for practically every person who tries and fails. It will be helpful if you can induce someone who knows you well to go over this list with you and help to analyze you by the thirty causes of failure. It may be beneficial if you try this alone. Most people cannot see themselves as others see them. You may be one who cannot. The oldest of admonitions is, Man, know thyself. If you market merchandise successfully, you must know the merchandise. The same is true in marketing personal services. You should know all of your weaknesses in order that you may either bridge them or eliminate them entirely. You should know your strength in order that you may call attention to it when selling your services. You can know yourself only through accurate analysis. The folly of ignorance in connection with self was displayed by a young man who applied to the manager of a well-known business for a position. He made a very good impression until the manager asked him what salary he expected. He replied that he had no fixed sum in mind, lack of a definite aim. The manager then said, We will pay you all you are worth after we try you out for a week. I will not accept it, the applicant replied, because I am getting more than that where I am now employed. Before you even start to negotiate for a readjustment of your salary in your present position, or to seek employment elsewhere, be sure that you are worth more than you now receive. It is one thing to want money. Everyone wants more. 
but it is something entirely different to be worth more many people mistake their wants for their just dues your financial requirements or wants have nothing whatever to do with your worth your value is established entirely by your ability to render useful service or your capacity to induce others to render such service take inventory of yourself twenty-eight questions you should answer annual self-analysis is as essential in the effective marketing of personal services as is annual inventory in merchandising moreover the yearly analysis should disclose a decrease in faults and an increase in virtues one goes ahead stands still or goes backward in life one's object should be of course to go ahead annual self-analysis will disclose whether advancement has been made and if so how much it will also disclose any backward steps one may have made the effective marketing of personal services requires one to move forward even if the progress is slow your annual self-analysis should be made at the end of each year so you can include in your new year's resolutions any improvements which the analysis indicates should be made take this inventory by asking yourself the following questions and by checking your answers with the aid of someone who will not permit you to deceive yourself as to their accuracy self-analysis questionnaire for personal inventory one have i attained the goal which i established as my objective for this year you should work with a definite yearly objective to be attained as a part of your major life objective two have i delivered service of the best possible quality of which i am capable or could i have improved any part of this service three have i delivered service in the greatest possible quantity of which i am capable four has the spirit of my conduct been harmonious and cooperative at all times five have i permitted the habit of procrastination to decrease my efficiency and if so to what extent six have i improved my personality and if so in what ways seven have i been persistent in following my plans through to completion eight have i reached decisions promptly and definitely on all occasions nine have i permitted any one or more of the six basic fears to decrease my efficiency ten have i been either overcautious or undercautious eleven has my relationship with my associates in work been pleasant or unpleasant if it has been unpleasant has the fault been partly or wholly mine twelve have i dissipated any of my energy through lack of concentration of effort thirteen have i been open-minded and tolerant in connection with all subjects fourteen in what way have i improved my ability to render service fifteen have i been intemperate in any of my habits sixteen have i expressed either openly or secretly any form of egotism seventeen has my conduct toward my associates been such that it has induced them to respect me eighteen have my opinions and decisions been based upon guesswork or accuracy of analysis and thought nineteen have i followed the habit of budgeting my time my expenses and my income and have i been conservative in these budgets twenty how much time have i devoted to unprofitable effort which i might have used to better advantage twenty one how may i rebudget my time and change my habits so i will be more efficient during the coming year twenty two have i been guilty of any conduct which was not approved by my conscience twenty three in what ways have i rendered more service and better service than i was paid to render twenty four have i been unfair to anyone and if so in what way twenty five if i had been the purchaser of my own services for the year would i be satisfied with my purchase twenty six am i in the right vocation and if not why not twenty seven has the purchaser of my services been satisfied with the service i have rendered and if not why not twenty eight what is my present rating on the fundamental principles of success make this rating fairly and frankly and have it checked by someone who is courageous enough to do it accurately having read and assimilated the information conveyed through this chapter you are now ready to create a practical plan for marketing your personal services in this chapter will be found an adequate description of every principle essential in planning the sale of personal services including the major attributes of leadership 
the most common causes of failure in leadership, a description of the fields of opportunity for leadership, the main causes of failure in all walks of life, and the important questions which should be used in self-analysis. This extensive and detailed presentation of accurate information has been included because it will be needed by all who must begin the accumulation of riches by marketing personal services. Those who have lost their fortunes and those who are just beginning to earn money have nothing but personal services to offer in return for riches. Therefore, it is essential that they have available the practical information needed to market services to best advantage. The information contained in this chapter will be of great value to all who aspire to attain leadership in any calling. It will be particularly helpful to those aiming to market their services as business or industrial executives. Complete assimilation and understanding of the information here conveyed will be helpful in marketing one's own services, and it will also help one to become more analytical and capable of judging people. The information will be priceless to personnel directors, employment managers, and other executives charged with the selection of employees and the maintenance of efficient organizations. If you doubt this statement, test its soundness by answering in writing the 28 self-analysis questions. That might be both interesting and profitable, even though you do not doubt the soundness of the statement. Where and how one may find opportunities to accumulate riches. Now that we have analyzed the principles by which riches may be accumulated, we naturally ask, where may one find favorable opportunities to apply these principles? Very well, let us take inventory and see what the United States of America offer the person seeking riches, great or small. To begin with, let us remember, all of us, that we live in a country where every law-abiding citizen enjoys freedom of thought and freedom of deed, unequaled anywhere in the world. Most of us have never taken inventory of the advantages of this freedom. We have never compared our unlimited freedom with the curtailed freedom in other countries. Here we have freedom of thought, freedom in the choice and enjoyment of education, freedom in religion, freedom in politics, freedom in the choice of a business, profession, or occupation, freedom to accumulate and own without molestation, all the property we can accumulate, freedom to choose our place of residence, freedom in marriage, freedom through equal opportunity to all races, freedom of travel from one state to another, freedom in our choice of foods, and freedom to aim for any station in life for which we have prepared ourselves, even for the presidency of the United States. We have other forms of freedom, but this list will give a bird's-eye view of the most important, which constitute opportunity of the highest order. This advantage of freedom is all the more conspicuous because the United States is the only country guaranteeing to every citizen, whether native-born or naturalized, so broad and varied a list of freedom. Next, let us recount some of the blessings which our widespread freedom has placed within our hands. Take the average American family, for example, meaning the family of average income, and sum up the benefits available to every member of the family in this land of opportunity and plenty. A. Food. Next to freedom of thought and deed comes food, clothing, and shelter, the three basic necessities of life. Because of our universal freedom, the average American family has available at its very door the choicest selection of food to be found anywhere in the world and at prices within its financial range. B. Shelter and C. Clothing Only the three basic necessities of food, clothing, and shelter have been mentioned. The average American citizen has other privileges and advantages available in return for modest effort, not exceeding eight hours per day of labor. Among these is the privilege of automobile transportation, with which one can go and come at will at a very small cost. He can place his surplus money in a bank with the assurance that his government will protect it and make good to him if the bank fails. If an American citizen wants to travel from one state to another, he needs no passport, no one's permission. He may go when he pleases and return at will. Moreover, he may travel by train, private automobile, bus, airplane, or ship, as his pocketbook permits. In Germany, Russia, Italy, and most of the other European and Oriental countries, the people cannot travel with so much freedom and at so little cost. The miracle that has provided these blessings. We often hear politicians proclaiming the freedom of America when they solicit votes, but seldom do they take the time or devote sufficient effort to the analysis of the source or nature of this freedom. 
having no axe to grind, no grudge to express, no ulterior motives to be carried out, I have the privilege of going into a frank analysis of that mysterious, abstract, greatly misunderstood something which gives to every citizen of America more blessings, more opportunities to accumulate wealth, more freedom of every nature than may be found in any other country. I have the right to analyze the source and nature of this unseen power, because I know and have known for more than a quarter of a century many of the men who organized that power and many who are now responsible for its maintenance. The name of this mysterious benefactor of mankind is Capital. Capital consists not alone of money, but more particularly of highly organized, intelligent groups of men who plan ways and means of using money efficiently for the good of the public and profitably to themselves. These groups consist of scientists, educators, chemists, inventors, business analysts, publicity men, transportation experts, accountants, lawyers, doctors, and both men and women who have highly specialized knowledge in all fields of industry and business. They pioneer, experiment, and blaze trails in new fields of endeavor. They support colleges, hospitals, public schools, build good roads, publish newspapers, pay most of the cost of government, and take care of the multitudinous detail essential to human progress. Stated briefly, the capitalists are the brains of civilization because they supply the entire fabric of which all education, enlightenment, and human progress consists. Money without brains always is dangerous. Properly used, it is the most important essential of civilization. The simple breakfasts here described could not have been delivered to the New York City family at a dime each or at any other price if organized capital had not provided the machinery, the ships, the railroads, and the huge armies of trained men to operate them. Some slight idea of the importance of organized capital may be had by trying to imagine yourself burdened with the responsibility of collecting without the aid of capital and delivering to the New York City family the simple breakfast described. To supply the tea, you would have to make a trip to China or India, both a very long way from America. Unless you are an excellent swimmer, you would become rather tired before making the round trip. Then, too, another problem would confront you. What would you use for money, even if you had the physical endurance to swim the ocean? To supply the sugar, you would have to take another long swim to Cuba or a long walk to the sugar beet section of Utah. But even then, you might come back without the sugar because organized effort and money are necessary to produce sugar, to say nothing of what is required to refine, transport, and deliver it to the breakfast table anywhere in the United States easily enough from the barnyards near New York City, but you would have a very long walk to Florida and return before you could serve the two glasses of grapefruit juice. You would have another long walk to Kansas or one of the other wheat-growing states when you went after the four slices of wheat bread. The rippled wheat biscuits would have to be omitted from the menu because they would not be available except through the labor of a trained organization of men and suitable machinery, all of which calls for capital. While resting, you could take off for another little swim down to South America, where you would pick up a couple of bananas, and on your return, you could take a short walk to the nearest farm, having a dairy, and pick up some butter and cream. Then your New York City family would be ready to sit down and enjoy breakfast, and you could collect your two dimes for your labor. Seems absurd, doesn't it? Well, the procedure described would be the only possible way these simple items of food could be delivered to the heart of New York City if we had no capitalistic system. The sum of money required for the building and maintenance of the railroads and steamships used in the delivery of that simple breakfast is so huge that it staggers one's imagination. It runs into hundreds of millions of dollars, not to mention the armies of trained employees required to man the ships and trains. But transportation is only a part of the requirements of modern civilization in capitalistic America. Before there can be anything to haul, something must be grown from the ground or manufactured and prepared for market. This calls for more millions of dollars for equipment, machinery, boxing, marketing, and for the wages of the millions of men and women. Steamships and railroads do not spring up from the earth and function automatically. They come in response to the call of civilization, through the labor and ingenuity and organizing ability of men who have the imagination, faith, enthusiasm, decision, persistence. These men are known as capitalists. 
They are motivated by the desire to build, construct, achieve, render useful service, earn profits, and accumulate riches. And because they render service without which there would be no civilization, they put themselves in the way of great riches. Just to keep the record simple and understandable, I will add that these capitalists are the same men of whom most of us have heard soapbox orators speak. They are the same men to whom radicals, racketeers, dishonest politicians, and grafting labor leaders refer as the predatory interests, or Wall Street. I am not attempting to present a brief for or against any group of men or any system of economics. I am not attempting to condemn collective bargaining when I refer to grafting labor leaders. Nor do I aim to give a clean bill of health to all individuals known as capitalists. The purpose of this book, a purpose to which I have faithfully devoted over a quarter of a century, is to present to all who want the knowledge the most dependable philosophy through which individuals may accumulate riches in whatever amounts they desire. I have here analyzed the economic advantages of the capitalistic system for the twofold purpose of showing, one, that all who seek riches must recognize and adapt themselves to the system that controls all approaches to fortunes, large or small, and, Two, to present the side of the picture opposite to that being shown by politicians and demagogues who deliberately becloud the issues they bring up by referring to organized capital as if it were something poisonous. This is a capitalistic country. It was developed through the use of capital, and we who claim the right to partake of the blessings of freedom and opportunity, we who seek to accumulate riches here, may as well know that neither riches nor opportunity would be available to us if organized capital had not provided these benefits. For more than 20 years it has been a somewhat popular and growing pastime for radicals, self-seeking politicians, racketeers, crooked labor leaders, and on occasion religious leaders to take pot shots at Wall Street, the money changers, and big business. The practice became so general that we witnessed during the business depression the unbelievable sight of high government officials lining up with the cheap politicians and labor leaders with the openly avowed purpose of throttling the system which has made industrial America the richest country on earth. The lineup was so general and so well organized that it prolonged the worst depression America has ever known. It cost millions of men their jobs because those jobs were inseparably a part of the industrial and capitalistic system which form the very backbone of the nation. During this unusual alliance of government officials and self-seeking individuals who were endeavoring to profit by declaring open season on the American system of industry, a certain type of labor leader joined forces with the politicians and offered to deliver voters in return for legislation designed to permit men to take riches away from industry by organized force of numbers instead of the better method of giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Millions of men and women throughout the nation are still engaged in this popular pastime of trying to get without giving. Some of them are lined up with labor unions where they demand shorter hours and more pay. Others do not take the trouble to work at all. They demand government relief and are getting it. Their idea of their rights of freedom was demonstrated in New York City where violent complaint was registered with the postmaster by a group of relief beneficiaries because the postmen awakened them at 7.30 a.m. to deliver government relief checks. They demanded that the time of delivery be set up to 10 o'clock. If you are one of those who believe that riches can be accumulated by the mere act of men who organize themselves into groups and demand more pay for less service, if you are one of those who demand government relief without early morning disturbance when money is delivered to you, if you are one of those who believe in trading their votes to politicians in return for the passing of laws which permit the raiding of the public treasury, you may rest securely on your belief with certain knowledge that no one will disturb you, because this is a free country where every man may think as he pleases, where nearly everybody can live with but little effort, where many men live well without doing any work whatsoever. However, you should know the full truth concerning this freedom of which so many people boast and so few understand. As great as it is, as far as it reaches as many privileges as it provides, it does not and cannot bring riches without effort. 
there is but one dependable method of accumulating and legally holding riches, and that is by rendering useful service. No system has ever been created by which men can legally acquire riches through mere force of numbers or without giving in return an equivalent value of one form or another. There is a principle known as the law of economics. This is more than a theory. It is a law no man can beat. Mark well the name of the principle and remember it because it is far more powerful than all the politicians and political machines. It is above and beyond the control of all the labor unions. It cannot be swayed nor influenced nor bribed by racketeers or self-appointed leaders in any calling. Moreover, it has an all-seeing eye and a perfect system of bookkeeping, in which it keeps an accurate account of the transactions of every human being engaged in the business of trying to get without giving. Sooner or later, its auditors come around, looking over the records of individuals both great and small, and demand an accounting. Wall Street, big business, capital, predatory interests, or whatever name you choose to give the system which has given us American freedom, represents a group of men who understand, respect, and adapt themselves to this powerful law of economics. Their financial continuation depends upon their respecting the law. Most people living in America like this country, its capitalistic system and all. I must confess I know of no better country where one may find greater opportunities to accumulate riches. Judging by their acts and deeds, there are some in this country who do not like it. That, of course, is their privilege. If they do not like this country, its capitalistic system, its boundless opportunities, they have the privilege of clearing out. Always there are other countries, such as Germany, Russia, in Italy, where one may try one's hand at enjoying freedom and accumulating riches, providing one is not too particular, America provides all the freedom and all the opportunity to accumulate riches that any honest person may require. When one goes hunting for game, one selects hunting grounds where game is plentiful. When seeking riches, the same rule would naturally obtain. If it is riches you are seeking, do not overlook the possibilities of a country whose citizens are so rich that women alone spend over $200 million annually for lipsticks, rouge, and cosmetics. Think twice, you who are seeking riches, before trying to destroy the capitalistic system of a country whose citizens spend over $50 million a year for greeting cards, with which to express their appreciation of their freedom. If it is money you are seeking, consider carefully a country that spends hundreds of millions of dollars annually for cigarettes, the bulk of the income from which goes to only four major companies engaged in supplying this national builder of nonchalance and quiet nerves. By all means, give plenty of consideration to a country whose people spend annually more than $15 million for the privilege of seeing moving pictures and toss in a few additional millions for liquor, narcotics, and other less potent soft drinks and giggle waters. Do not be in too big a hurry to get away from a country whose people willingly, even eagerly, hand over millions of dollars annually for football, baseball, and prize fights. And by all means, stick by a country whose inhabitants give up more than a million dollars a year for chewing gum and another million for safety razor blades. Remember also that this is but the beginning of the available sources for the accumulation of wealth. Only a few of the luxuries and non-essentials have been mentioned. But remember that the business of producing, transporting, and marketing these few items of merchandise gives regular employment to many millions of men and women who receive for their services many millions of dollars monthly and spend it freely for both the luxuries and the necessities. Especially remember that back of all this exchange of merchandise and personal services may be found an abundance of opportunity to accumulate riches. Here our American freedom comes to one's aid. There is nothing to stop you or anyone from engaging in any portion of the effort necessary to carry on these businesses. If one has superior talent, training, and experience, one may accumulate riches in large amounts. Those not so fortunate may accumulate smaller amounts. Anyone may earn a living in return for a very nominal amount of labor. So there you are. Opportunity has spread its wares before you. Step up to the front. Select what you want. Create your plan. Put the plan into action and follow through with persistence. Capitalistic America will do the rest. You can depend on this much. Capitalistic America ensures every person the opportunity to render useful service 
and to collect riches in proportion to the value of the service. The system denies no one this right, but it does not and cannot promise something for nothing, because the system itself is irrevocably controlled by the law of economics, which neither recognizes nor tolerates for long getting without giving. The law of economics was passed by nature. There is no supreme court to which visitors of this law may appeal. The law hands out both penalties for its violation and appropriate rewards for its observance, without interference or the possibility of interference by any human being. The law cannot be repealed. It is as fixed as the stars in the heavens and subject to and part of the same system that controls the stars. May one refuse to adapt oneself to the law of economics? Certainly. This is a free country where all men are born with equal rights, including the privilege of ignoring the law of economics. What happens then? Well, nothing happens until large numbers of men join forces for the avowed purpose of ignoring the law and taking what they want by force. Then comes the dictator with well-organized firing squads and machine guns. We have not yet reached that stage in America, but we have heard all we want to know about how the system works. Perhaps we shall be fortunate enough not to demand personal knowledge of so gruesome a reality. Doubtless we shall prefer to continue with our freedom of speech, freedom of deed, and freedom to render useful service in return for riches. The practice by government officials of extending to men and women the privilege of raiding the public treasury in return for votes sometimes results in election. But as night follows day, the final payoff comes, when every penny wrongfully used must be repaid with compound interest on compound interest. If those who make the grab are not forced to repay, the burden falls on their children and their children's children. Even unto the third and fourth generations, there is no way to avoid the debt. Men can, and sometimes do, form themselves into groups for the purpose of crowding wages up and working hours down. There is a point beyond which they cannot go. It is the point at which the law of economics steps in and the sheriff gets both the employer and the employees. For six years, from 1929 to 1935, the people of America, both rich and poor, barely missed seeing the old man economics hand over to the sheriff all the businesses and industries and banks. It was not a pretty sight. It did not increase our respect for mob psychology through which men cast reason to the winds and start trying to get without giving. We who went through those six discouraging years, when fear was in the saddle and faith was on the ground, cannot forget how ruthlessly the law of economics exacted its toll from both rich and poor, weak and strong, old and young. We shall not wish to go through another such experience. These observations are not founded upon short-time experience. They are the result of 25 years of careful analysis of the methods of both the most successful and the most unsuccessful men America has known. Chapter 8. The Mastery of Procrastination. The Seventh Step Toward Riches. Accurate analysis of over 25,000 men and women who had experienced failure disclosed the fact that lack of decision was near the head of the list of the 30 major causes of failure. This is no mere statement of a theory. It is a fact. Procrastination, the opposite of decision, is a common enemy which practically every man must conquer. You will have an opportunity to test your capacity to reach quick and definite decisions when you finish reading this book and are ready to begin putting into action the principles which it describes. Analysis of several hundred people who had accumulated fortunes well beyond the million-dollar mark disclosed the fact that every one of them had the habit of reaching decisions promptly and of changing these decisions slowly if and when they were changed. People who fail to accumulate money, without exception, have the habit of reaching decisions, if at all, very slowly, and of changing these decisions quickly and often. One of Henry Ford's most outstanding qualities is his habit of reaching decisions quickly and definitely, and changing them slowly. This quality is so pronounced in Mr. Ford that it has given him the reputation of being obstinate, it was this quality which prompted Mr. Ford to continue to manufacture his famous Model T, the world's ugliest car, 
when all of his advisors and many of the purchasers of the car were urging him to change it. Perhaps Mr. Ford delayed too long in making the change, but the other side of the story is that Mr. Ford's firmness of decision yielded a huge fortune before the change in model became necessary. There is but little doubt that Mr. Ford's habit of definiteness of decision assumes the proportion of obstinacy, but this quality is preferable to slowness in reaching decisions and quickness in changing them. The majority of people who fail to accumulate money sufficient for their needs are generally easily influenced by the opinions of others. They permit the newspapers and the gossiping neighbors to do their thinking for them. Opinions are the cheapest commodities on earth. Everyone has a flock of opinions ready to be wished upon anyone who will accept them. If you are influenced by opinions when you reach decisions, you will not succeed in any undertaking, much less in that of transmuting your own desire into money. If you are influenced by the opinions of others, you will have no desire of your own. Keep your counsel when you begin to put into practice the principles described here by reaching your own decisions and following them. Take no one into your confidence except the members of your mastermind group, and be very sure in your selection of this group that you choose only those who will be in complete sympathy and harmony with your purpose. Close friends and relatives, while not meaning to do so, often handicap one through opinions and sometimes through ridicule, which is meant to be humorous. Thousands of men and women carry inferiority complexes with them all through life, because some well-meaning but ignorant person destroyed their confidence through opinions or ridicule. You have a brain and mind of your own. Use it, and reach your own decisions. If you need facts or information from other people to enable you to reach decisions, as you probably will in many instances, acquire these facts or secure the information you need quietly, without disclosing your purpose. It is characteristic of people who have but a smattering or veneer of knowledge to try to give the impression that they have much knowledge. Such people generally do too much talking and too little listening. Keep your eyes and ears wide open and your mouth closed if you wish to acquire the habit of prompt decision. Those who talk too much do little else. If you talk more than you listen, you not only deprive yourself of many opportunities to accumulate useful knowledge, but you also disclose your plans and purposes to people who will take great delight in defeating you because they envy you. Remember also that every time you open your mouth in the presence of a person who has an abundance of knowledge, you display to that person your exact stock of knowledge or your lack of it. Genuine wisdom is usually conspicuous through modesty and silence. Keep in mind the fact that every person with whom you associate is, like yourself, seeking the opportunity to accumulate money. If you talk about your plans too freely, you may be surprised when you learn that some other person has beaten you to your goal by putting into action ahead of you the plans of which you talked unwisely. Let one of your first decisions be to keep a closed mouth and open ears and eyes. As a reminder to yourself to follow this advice, it will be helpful if you copy the following epigram in large letters and place it where you will see it daily. Tell the world what you intend to do, but first show it. This is the equivalent of saying that deeds and not words are what count most. Freedom or Death on a Decision The value of decisions depends upon the courage required to render them. The great decisions which served as the foundation of civilization were reached by assuming great risks, which often meant the possibility of death. Lincoln's decision to issue his famous Proclamation of Emancipation which gave freedom to the colored people of America, was rendered with full understanding that his act would turn thousands of friends and political supporters against him. He knew, too, that carrying out that proclamation would mean death to thousands of men on the battlefield. In the end, it cost Lincoln his life. That required courage. Socrates' decision to drink the cup of poison, rather than compromise in his personal belief, was a decision of courage. It turned time ahead a thousand years and gave to people then unborn the right to freedom of thought and speech. 
the decision of Robert E. Lee, when he came to the parting of the way with the Union, and took up the cause of the South, was a decision of courage, for he well knew that it might cost him his own life, that it would surely cost the lives of others. But the greatest decision of all time, as far as any American citizen is concerned, was reached in Philadelphia, July 4, 1776, when fifty-six men signed their names to a document which they well knew would bring freedom to all Americans, or leave every one of the fifty-six hanging from a gallows. You have heard of this famous document, but you may not have drawn from it the great lesson in personal achievement it so plainly taught. We all remember the date of this monumentous decision, but few of us realize what courage that decision required. We remember our history as it was taught. We remember dates and the names of the men who fought. We remember Valley Forge and Yorktown. We remember George Washington and Lord Cornwallis. But we know little of the real forces back of these names, dates, and places. We know still less of that intangible power which ensured us freedom long before Washington's armies reached Yorktown. We read the history of the Revolution and falsely imagine that George Washington was the father of our country, that it was he who won our freedom, while the truth is, Washington was only an accessory after the fact because victory for his armies had been ensured long before Lord Cornwallis surrendered. This is not intended to rob Washington of any of the glory he so richly merited. Its purpose, rather, is to give greater attention to the astounding power that was the real cause of his victory. It is nothing short of tragedy that the writers of history have missed entirely even the slightest reference to the irresistible power which gave birth and freedom to the nation destined to set up new standards of independence for all the peoples of the earth. I say it is a tragedy because it is the self-same power which must be used by every individual who surmounts the difficulties of life and forces life to pay the price asked. Let us briefly review the events which gave birth to this power. The story begins with an incident in Boston, March 5, 1770. British soldiers were patrolling the streets and by their presence openly threatening the citizens. The colonists resented armed men marching in their midst. They began to express their resentment openly, hurling stones as well as epithets at the marching soldiers until the commanding officer gave orders, Fix bayonets! Charge! The battle was on. It resulted in the death and injury of many. The incident aroused such resentment that the provincial assembly made up of prominent colonists called a meeting for the purpose of taking definite action. Two of the members of that assembly were John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Long live their names. They spoke up courageously and declared that a move must be made to eject all British soldiers from Boston. Remember this. A decision in the minds of two men might properly be called the beginning of the freedom which we of the United States now enjoy. Remember, too, that the decision of these two men called for faith and courage because it was dangerous. Before the assembly adjourned, Samuel Adams was appointed to call on the governor of the province, Hutchinson, and demand the withdrawal of British troops. The request was granted. The troops were removed from Boston, but the incident was not closed. It had caused a situation destined to change the entire trend of civilization. Strange, is it not, how the great changes such as the American Revolution and the World War often have their beginnings in circumstances which seem unimportant? It is interesting also to observe that these important changes usually begin in the form of a definite decision in the minds of a relatively small number of people. Few of us know the history of our country well enough to realize that John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Richard Henry Lee of the province of Virginia were the real fathers of our country. Richard Henry Lee became an important factor in this story by reason of the fact that he and Samuel Adams communicated frequently by correspondence, sharing freely their fears and their hopes concerning the welfare of the people of their provinces. From this practice, Adams conceived the idea that a mutual exchange of letters between the thirteen colonies might help to bring about the coordination of efforts so badly needed in connection with the solution of their problems. Two years after the clash with the soldiers in Boston, March 72, 
Adams presented this idea to the assembly in the form of a motion that a correspondence committee be established among the colonies with definitely appointed correspondents in each colony for the purpose of friendly cooperation for the betterment of the colonies of British America. Mark well this incident. It was the beginning of the organization of the far-flung power destined to give freedom to you and to me. The mastermind had already been organized. It consisted of Adams, Lee, and Hancock. I tell you further that if two of you agree upon the earth concerning anything for which you ask, it will come to you from my Father who is in heaven. The Committee of Correspondence was organized. Observe that this move provided the way for increasing the power of the mastermind by adding to it men from all the colonies. Take notice that this procedure constituted the first organized planning of the disgruntled colonists. In Union there is strength. The citizens of the colonies had been waging disorganized warfare against the British soldiers through incidents similar to the Boston riot, but nothing of benefit had been accomplished. Their individual grievances had not been consolidated under one mastermind. No group of individuals had put their hearts, minds, souls, and bodies together in one definite decision to settle their difficulty with the British once and for all, until Adams, Hancock, and Lee got together. Meanwhile, the British were not idle. They, too, were doing some planning and masterminding on their own account, with the advantage of having back of them money and organized soldiery. The Crown appointed Gage to supplant Hutchinson as the governor of Massachusetts. One of the new governor's first acts was to send a messenger to call on Samuel Adams for the purpose of endeavoring to stop his opposition. By fear... We can best understand the spirit of what happened by quoting the conversation between Colonel Fenton, the messenger sent by Gage, and Adams. Colonel Fenton, I have been authorized by Governor Gage to assure you, Mr. Adams, that the Governor has been empowered to confer upon you such benefits as would be satisfactory. Endeavor to win Adams by promise of bribes. Upon the condition that you engage to cease in your opposition to the measures of the government. It is the government's advice to you, sir, not to incur the further displeasure of His Majesty. Your conduct has been such as makes you liable to penalties of an order of Henry the Eighth, by which persons can be sent to England for trial for treason or misprision of treason at the discretion of a governor of a province. But, by changing your political course, you will not only receive great personal advantages, but you will make your peace with the king.' 